Outside of Sassy's house, her son Michael is leaning into a white sedan parked on the street, vacuuming glass out of the back seat. The car belongs to Sassy's neighbor, Nikki. She's one of her closest friends. They got to know each other after Nikki's son was murdered. Today, Nikki's car is riddled with bullet holes. Shit. Yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, right here. You know what, though, in all, in all honesty? Shit, I'm feeling the pain out of the car. I'm what sorry. the fuck is the matter? What did that even fall off from? It came from the bullet holes. Oh, whatever. Nikki had been driving in Little Village, the neighborhood where Sessie grew up and where she works now. Michael, Sessie's son, who helped with making the crosses, was in the car with Nikki. So was Sessie's daughter, Michelle, the one who's been sick for more than a year, and a family friend in his 20s. They'd all gone together to Little Village to pick up some homemade tamales from a friend of Sessie's. They were stopped at a red light when a car turned left in front of them. As the car was crossing past the front of Nikki's car, the people inside started shooting. That shit happened out of fucking nowhere. Like, like for real. Like, that shit was too smooth. What? I mean, what the? why the hell were they shooting at you? We don't know. The motive for the shooting is a mystery. Best guess, the shooters may have been aiming for the family friend in the back seat, who has a history of involvement with Little Village gangs. They fired about 20 bullets. One shot ripped through Nikki's hand. But somehow, that was the only injury. I had to replace one of my windows Just with the windshield. Sessie's son, Michael, points out a bullet hole in the side of the driver's seat headrest. Holy shit, that was that close to your head? Yeah, and there was a bullet blew out that window by Michelle's head on the passenger side. How did you even... The cops don't know how me and Michelle didn't get shot in the head. Yeah. Like, one of us should have been dead, honestly. Yeah, honestly, one of us should have been dead. There's, there's 21 no shots they found? There's a bullet lodged in my dashboard still. Yeah, there's, there's this right here, Patrick. Oh, shit, I didn't even see that. I mean, so you got one... They were like, there's 15 holes total in my car when the police like did it. Right here. Yeah, they found 19 shell casings and 15 holes in my car. Inside the house, the near tragedy has Sessi shaken. My kids would give their shirts off their back, and they're not affiliated. They're not. But they're trying to take their lives. I have a lot of anger in me right now because you try to take my kid's life. A lot of anger. The shooting has her feeling old feelings, leaning back toward her old ways, contemplating revenge. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Patrick Smith, along with Ceci Mannion. This is Motive. Some things are inherited. Some people inherit the good things, some people inherit the bad things. You're not involved in this life. And why you have to choose that is beyond me. They don't care about us at all, but they always call us superheroes. Not no superheroes. They got to go and take care of him. They got to go lock him up. Episode 6, Aftermath. Sessie's response to her kids being shot at, that moment when she faced a choice between staying on the path of peace or going back to her old ways, we'll come back to that. But this is our last episode, and we also want to check back with some people, starting with Fats and Vernell. Do you know how it started? No, I don't know how it started. I couldn't even say how it started. 
It's summer in East Garfield Park at the Spartan storefront that serves as the anti-violence headquarters for Breakthrough. Fats and Vernell can feel the violence closing in. In the past month, there's been a string of shootings that Fats and the team all believe are connected to a stolen necklace. Fats says they've had five shootings back and forth all tied to it, at least one death. The gang at the center of it is really active. The workers in Garfield Park say they're into it with everybody. I wish I could talk to somebody just to get an idea, like, see who's pulling the strings or, you know, what's, what's making them tick to make them... You know, being to all this this madness that's going on. But those guys are not trying to hear nothing from nobody, no old guys, nobody young. They're just not trying to hear anything. Because yeah, it's just too much bloodshed. So they got their mind made up like it is what it is from the cradle to the grave, I guess. As they discuss the shootings, Fats and the team get an alert. Hey, somebody just got shot, man. We got on Lexington, 30, 46 West Lexington. Y'all ready? Come on, we all gonna ride together? There's been another shooting. Two people hit. It happened in broad daylight, just a few blocks from where that really active gang hangs out. Fats and the team head out of the office. The cars are out front. Brunel jumps in his car. I ride with Fats, wondering what kind of scene we're about to drive up on. When Fats and Brunel get to the scene, there's police tape and a lot of cops, but not much else. Neighbors are out on their porches looking, but they don't have much to say. They learn one victim drove himself to the hospital. The other was more seriously injured and was taken by ambulance to Mount Sinai. They're not having much success in the neighborhood, so Fats makes the short drive over to the hospital. Parks right by Sessie's usual spot in front of Mount Sinai's tall iron safety fence. In front of Mount Sinai is a car parked haphazardly next to the curb. A uniformed police officer is taping the car off with yellow police tape. This is evidently the car one of the victims used to drive himself to the hospital. On the sidewalk, families and friends of the two victims stand waiting for news. Fats learns that one of them, a man in his early 30s, was shot in the arm but will be okay. Fats approaches one of his family members, trying to start the process of connecting, getting them services, and talking them out of retaliation. But he's rebuffed. A young woman tells her mom not to talk to Fats. Then, a middle-aged woman with dyed blonde braids comes sprinting out of the emergency room, panic and pain in her face. She runs past the security gate and out onto the sidewalk. The other person hit in the shooting, a young man, is dead. The woman runs down the sidewalk, looking for someone in particular, or maybe just not sure what else to do. About a dozen women and children gather around her in disbelief, hugging her and each other. She wails, then suddenly she collapses onto the pavement, seemingly unconscious. The police officer, who was taping off the car, a younger officer with a goatee, he runs over to her and scoops her up in his arms and carries her back into the emergency room. 
My job as a reporter in this moment is to interview the family, gather information, get their reactions on tape. But I can't bring myself to do it. So I stand off to the side, watching, feeling guilty about even observing the torrent of grief. Fats consoles a woman. She sobs into his shoulder. Fats tells me what I'd kind of assumed, that the woman who collapsed is the young man's mom. I can't take my eyes off of a pair of boys standing next to each other, staring straight ahead into nothingness. They can't be older than 16, probably younger. They look to me like they are doing everything they can not to cry. I tried to get in contact with the young man's family to talk to them about his life and his death. I failed to reach them. He was 23 years old, killed by a gunshot to the chest. Back at the office, Fat starts working the phones, trying to figure out what group was responsible so he can try and prevent more shootings. Hello? Hey. Somebody, somebody, who was that guy shot on Gladys this morning? Because uh, we just had a shooting. They said it's from that. What Fats is hearing, this is another shooting possibly linked to that stolen chain. The two groups involved, they both have rejected any efforts by Fats and Vernell to talk with them or mediate. And that's one that we literally got to stay away from. We got to stay away. That's one that we can't. It's real sensitive, so we got to stay away from that. With the chain thing? Yeah, with the chain thing. They don't want to do no talking right now. So, that's your face right now. You just look like fall, crestfall. Yeah, because it, it ain't it ain't done. It's going to keep going on, back and forth, back and forth, mm-hmm. over <laughs> $8,000 chain or some okay. shit. Fats knows that within a few blocks of this office, there are angry young men with guns planning to get revenge. And there's nothing he can do about it. Around 9 p.m., Fats drives home. He's quiet and sullen. Uh, what do you think is going to happen next with uh, with the shooting that happened today? Honestly, I know it's not over with, but it's a, it's. I don't know. It's hard to say when it's going to happen again, but. I just know for sure it's not over with. Are you trying to think of angles how you could get in get in there, or you just feel like you gotta it's gotta play it's gotta play out. Ain't, ain't no way it's gonna. It can't be squashed. Why do you say that? It can't. Too much bloodshed. Like a lot of people lost their lives on both sides. How would you know when there's maybe an opening? Never going to be an opening. No? <laughs> no. So how was it for you to be at the shoot today? I mean, it was... It was rough. I, I, I've interviewed a lot of people who've lost people, you know. I've interviewed people who've been shot, but... I've never been there when a mother learns that her son died. That moment, you know? 
That's yeah. awful. And, and I felt, you know, speaking honestly about how I felt, I felt bad. Like, I think it's important, you know, like, I believe in the job that I do. I think it's important to document. Maybe somebody hears this and it inspires something. But it felt a little bad to be there. Like, I was there in this, like, private moment, you know, I with a... With headphones on or something. That's how I, I feel too sometimes. But. Those feelings. Experiencing these grief-stricken scenes. Sometimes without much to offer but a comforting shoulder. They take a toll. A few months after the string of shootings tied to the stolen necklace, the murder of the 23-year-old and his mother collapsed on the sidewalk. Fats was forced to take a month off of work following his own trip to the emergency room. What up, Fats? How you doing? Brunel. What's up, man? How you doing, man? What up, Fats? What's Good to see you. You been good? Yeah, I've been blessed, man. I ain't got no... I'm glad to hear that. Shortly after Fats got back to Breakthrough, around Christmas, I went and visited him and Vernell at the anti-violence office where they work. Fats, you feeling all right? Fats was, as usual low-key about the whole thing. Yeah, I went in for a checkup and wound up in the hospital. <laughs> what What happened? Uh, just my blood pressure was high and the doctor thought it was probably stress, probably from the job. But, Fats's uh, blood pressure was 206 over 166. He was in hypertensive crisis. She's like, this might not be the job for you. You might need to take a break or find another position. His doctor believes the stress and trauma of his job is endangering his health. In other words, after surviving Chicago violence for years, including being shot and stabbed, it could be working to prevent shootings that ultimately kills him. Fat says one of the things weighing heavily on him is that scene outside of Mount Sinai Hospital, the murder of the 23-year-old, how helpless he felt. The lady who fell out and I had to try and console her, yeah. I think about that all the time. You know, it's things like that that keeps my pressure up. You know, just be replaying those type type of scenarios and, you know, like wondering why why did this have to happen. But When you constantly show up to these shootings, man, like we do, you know what I'm saying, going to the hospital, watching these families, man, crying and boo-hooing and, and these young people's, you know, being buried before their parents, man, that, 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 it's a hurt, man. The nature of the work means the tragedies keep piling up. On average, 700 people get murdered every year in Chicago. Thousands more are shot and survive. Something like that scene outside of Mount Sinai happens all the time. Right before Fats took his doctor-recommended four-week break, East Garfield Park suffered a mass shooting. Fourteen people, including three kids, were shot during a vigil for a woman who had died from cancer. One man died. The rest survived but are scarred and traumatized. On his desk, Fats has a notebook with a list of the victims of the mass shooting. His bosses asked him to contact every victim and ask them what kind of help they need in the aftermath of the shooting. Okay, this is a guy. He's, he was shot. All he asked for, he just won't. You know, some Christmas stuff for his 15-year-old son. Help his mama with rent, lights, gas. 
but the mother wanted uh, relocation because it's traumatizing when she walks out her door. This guy, his his father was deceased. All he wanted, he wanted his car note paid uh, because he was off work. One lady, she behind on her rent because she got shot. She couldn't go to work. Fat says the conversations were difficult. But what's harder is that he's already getting pushback. His bosses think they'll have a hard time fulfilling the requests. They're not going to get him none of this stuff. I did this for, for nothing. And I sent the list around and haven't heard anything back. You know, it's like it's, it's sad. You know, nobody cares. They really don't care. And I can tell you this too, man, that uh, Breakthrough, they put forth an effort. You know what I'm saying? They do. They do a lot. We, we, we do a lot. With this organization, do a lot, man. I'm going to put it like this. Go ahead, bro. Breakthrough does a lot for the community. Yes, they do. They do a lot for the people. But in violence prevention... It's not enough being done nowhere in no organization. No organization. Violence prevention, there's not enough being done. Fats and Vernell are trying to heal their community. That's what violence prevention means to them. Making their neighborhood whole. Making it so desperate kids won't feel like they have no choice but to join up with a gang. Making it so people in danger can afford to get away making it so people suffering trauma can get treatment instead of perpetuating violence. Coming up, we'll visit with Joey, the man who was shot 11 times outside of his house. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River. Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Can we come in? All right. It's one week before Christmas. Joey's son, Mateo, is finishing up his first semester of high school. He's grown a mustache the thin, wispy hairs of an adolescent. And he's been playing lots of basketball. He played yesterday. Mostly playing point guard and shooting guard. Here, go ahead. I had a nice fast break, but annoying me, I fucked it up. Oh, you didn't hit the layup? No. This week is finals. Mateo is not doing well in school. He's late almost every day. I talked to my third period teacher. He said, like, there's no way I could pass that class because I'm never there. Still, Mateo has avoided being a victim of violence, and he's stayed out of a gang. You know, before the school year started, remember, I remember, like, Ceci gave you that talking to out here. And she was really worried that you would feel tempted to join up. Have you felt that at all? No. You know what I mean? If they asked me would he join, I was like, no, because I'm not about that. Like, what, what, what my father just said. Like, he don't, wanna, he don't want me to turn exactly how he turned out. He wants me to, like, a, be a better person. Some combination of Ceci, Isabel, Alondra, Joey, and Mateo's own strength of will has helped him avoid going down that path that Ceci was so worried about, the one so many other young teens in Chicago are pushed down. 
It's good news. Great news, even. But I worry. Mateo's safety is based on not allowing any of his classmates to find out where he lives. Are you worried about people figuring out where you're from? I mean, yeah, but if I keep my computer on safety mode, like, locked, they won't be able to check where I'm from, this and that. It doesn't seem like a long-term solution, but that's what Mateo's mom and dad say they're working on, trying to buy a new house somewhere away from the neighborhood. In the meantime, after months of back and forth, Joey went into the police station to ID the man who he says shot him and killed his neighbor. He tells me the story sitting on the couch in his living room, his dirty fish tank burbling next to him. Uh, when I walked in, there, I asked for um, detective... Let's just show me the pictures. So I circle. He says, circle the one you think they did that to you. I said, I don't think. So you're in this in the in the room at the police station, and they show you a picture. Yeah. And you're like, that is the guy. Yeah, it's like, it's him. It's like his face. It's like, the, it's just everything about him. You killed someone, you know, and you hurt somebody real bad. And you think the Lord's going to let you get away. But after all that, he picked the wrong guy. And I told the police officer, and he goes, it ain't him. And then he goes, um, don't worry about it. We got the gun, we got we got the bullets, we got the shells, and we got the car. So it's been six months since I first met you when, when I came here with Ceci. Yeah. You remember that? It went fast. Every, every time I've talked to you, yeah. you've said, I know who shot me. I saw his face as he shot me. So how did you pick the wrong guy? Because the way the boy looked. Because the way the boy looked, you know. But you saw his face as he was shooting you, right? Yeah. You looked into his eyes as he was shooting you. Yeah, looking looking at him. I looked at him. They were laughing. And you still picked out somebody else in the photo lineup? Yeah. I'm not criticizing you at all I still just I, I'm still surprised that you you picked the wrong guy That's yeah I know me too I'm not worried about it when they pick the wrong guy I just put my head down and pray to God God's gonna take care of it I gotta leave it in your hands God I'm surprised because of how adamant Joey's been but I probably shouldn't be eyewitness accounts are often unreliable I keep thinking Maybe this means detectives were right not to prioritize Joey. They thought he was too impaired by his medication. They kept putting him off when he asked them to let him make an ID. Maybe they were going based on an assessment that he wasn't going to make for a good witness. I talked to one expert who studies police investigations, and he thinks the four-month wait between the shooting and the photo lineup could be the reason Joey got it wrong. But he says there's no way to know for sure. Maybe Joey just doesn't remember the face as well as he thinks he does. At the start of this episode, we left Ceci at a crossroads, sitting in the aftermath of the shooting that could have killed two of her children. It wasn't an easy place for her to be. The shooting made her question this new path she'd forged for herself. A life of peace and compassion and forgiveness. The cop even said they should have been dead. 
with the way you seen the car. It was worse with the windshield, and I—I I mean, it was bad. There's still bullets stuck in her in her seat. Yeah, I'm looking at the car. I mean, there's so many bullets. I mean, <sighs> it was in the front. My daughter would. She's 90 pounds. My daughter. She's fighting an illness. She wouldn't have lived through it. She wouldn't have lived through it. Ceci wondered if her children were still at risk even after she had changed everything. If there were still dangerous people out there who didn't care what kind of life you were living. If the peace she had created was this fragile, then what good was it? Was it worth preserving? I tried to put myself in other people's shoes of how my parents, how they're feeling and how I calmed them down by talking to them about not going out and doing something stupid. You mean the parents and your support group, the parents you work with? Right. All the parents, you know, with my role at my job and the support group that I run, I always, when there's different stages of grief, and one of the stages is anger, you know, and they want to go out and just get anybody, and that's not right either. So I try to practice what I preach, and it's very hard. It's very hard. Um, I, I went to support, I had support group yesterday, and we talked about it. And the parents talked to me, like they were there to support me. Um, but I think that in my old days, if it was the other type of people around me, I would have been like, no, let's go look. Let's go look. But then my kids would have lost me. Because either I would have been in jail or dead. Yeah. The near tragedy, the trauma that her whole family suffered, it made Ceci question herself. It made her ask if she is really committed to peace. And she answered, yes. As much as Ceci spends her time dedicated trying to help others change, she's a success story herself. She's a success story for Jesse, the man who pulled Ceci out of the gang and got her this job, the man we met on our first visit to Ceci's house. She's also a success story for herself. She has willed herself to be better, to take risks to stop gang conflicts, to resist the temptation to go back to her old life. And that transformation has, in turn, transformed others' lives. Two weeks after the shooting... In a dress shop just outside of Little Village, Ceci hands a little girl a wrapped present and jokes with a chubby young man they've convinced to dress up as Santa Claus. If you don't like it, we're going to beat up Santa. <laughs> He's like... What the... Like, what do I have to do with it? <laughs> you like it? Yeah. Which one you like better? You like that one or this one? Ceci's brought her family and friends here to help give out Christmas presents. All right. So she traded out. You're lucky, Santa. She made a good decision. Her friend Nikki is dressed up as a snowman. She holds the round snowman head in the crook of her arm while she smokes a cigarette outside the entrance. Hey. Hey, Nikki. I love your outfit. Says his 19-year-old son, Michael, is dressed as the Grinch. He's very committed to the part and won't take the mask off. 
the Grinch doesn't speak? The Grinch doesn't talk to me. <laughs> the Grinch don't like me. No? Nah. Sassy teases the kids as they come by to pick up their presents and pose for pictures with the Grinch, the snowman, and Santa Claus. Let's play a game. You want this big gift or that little gift? You want the big? Okay, that means you got to give the little gift up. Okay, let's see. Take it and run with the other one. <laughs> okay, let's open it and see which one you like better. Okay? Sassy's daughter, Michelle, is off to the side, keeping a list of which kids get which gifts. The presents are for children who have lost their parents or other loved ones to gun violence. Michelle's recent brush with death is still at the top of her mind. My brother's here. I'm here. We're here to post this event for other families that didn't get through it. So, you know, me being lucky getting through it, I'm like, here, guys, I'm going to give back to you guys. Uh, it, it's nice. Is it nice to be here with all these smiling kids? And, and it is. I love it. I enjoy it. We had um, a family. Before the family we have now with two little girls, and I was asking them, what brings joy to your Christmas? You know, I don't want them to constantly think about the person that they lost. I want them to cherish the gifts that my mom, Ceci, you know, came up with for these families. So I was asking them what their favorite um, person was, and one of the little girls said the reindeer, the other one said the snowman. So, uh, yeah, it brings a smile to my face, knowing that my mom's out here helping, and I'm out here helping my mom help other families. After the, and I, this is my last question about the, the, the incident, but after that happened, you know, I talked to your mom, and she said, her initial thought was, I'm, I got to go out there and get revenge, and then sort of, no, I'm not that person anymore. I mean, what do you think of, like, how your mom has sort of changed as a person? Um, I put my mom at a pedestal because of the way she changed her life for my siblings and I. And don't get me wrong, um, I was thinking the same way when the incident happened, and I told my mom, and my, my mom told me not to think that way. And I look at her like, Mom, you're the biggest gangster I know, you know? How do we not think this way? And she told me, let the detectives handle it. Let the detectives handle it. Let the, let the cops do their job. Um, I think my mom did change, and I appreciate it. Because if it was her back then, she would have been God knows. Sessie, this this is probably going to be our last time doing this, sitting down together in studio. It's okay, but you're not going nowhere. <laughs> That's true. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you're not getting rid of me. So we just heard the end of our final episode, and we heard your daughter, Michelle, talking about how happy it makes her to see the way you've bettered your life. What were you thinking about as you heard her there? I don't even know what to say. She almost lost her life. And who knows where I would have been if she would have been hurt. I don't know. A lot of it, when it happened, it made me want to go back. So I think that I made a drastic change. Just because what you did in your past doesn't mean you got to carry it with you. I think we do this to show people that there is possibility for change. 
And I'm happy that my kids see that. Since this is our last episode, I want to go over some of my big takeaways and impressions with you. But first, I want to talk through sort of what we learned in this episode. And I want you, as you've done throughout this whole season, to help me make sense of everything that we heard in this episode. I want to start with the people we're calling Joey and Mateo. So Joey is looking to buy a house. Yes. He's looking to buy it within the next 30 to 60 days. I don't see that happening. Um, I've talked to him about that. He needs to move. I think of his kids. I, I see his kids, and me and his son had a conversation the other day. I just want to take him home. Come on, forget everything. Just let's go. I feel for them kids. I don't know who's telling him it's going to be 30 days. It's not going to be 30 days. So he's still there. We also spent time with Fats this episode. Uh, He had to take four weeks off of work at his doctor's orders because of high blood pressure. I can see it. When you care and you have that passion, like he does, I listen to him as well. (laughs) Yeah. High blood pressure. I'm surprised there's not more stuff wrong with him. You're there to support these families. But mentally, that takes a toll on you. When I go home, I sit in my car. I don't want to take that in my house. So just hearing, you know, the mom's cries and just replaying the whole situation. And that's for anybody. It takes a toll emotionally, mentally. What do you hope people take away from this season of Motive? I hope people understand the work, what we do, and don't judge us and look at us like these are just, oh, these are just gangbangers that need money doing this kind of work. We're out there helping. We risk ourselves, our lives every day out there to help these families. Remember, my mom walked through this. Right. Alone. My mom struggled every day until she died with the grief from my brother. My mother didn't have nowhere to turn to. We didn't have the support that I give these families when this happened to my brother. So if I can help these families, and, you know, in all reality, like I tell my families during grief group, They feel that I'm helping them. In all reality, they're helping me. So some of my big observations doing this, this question of, is this the way to reduce gun violence? I believe it's never going to stop. But if we can put a dent in it and make a change, hey, I'll take it. I'll say spending time with you and, and Fats, shadowing you in Little Village and Fats in East Garfield Park. It does seem to me like maybe this isn't enough on its own. Like I see the families you work with and the people who've been shot that you help and how much they need compared to how much you and Enlace can provide. And same with, with Fats in East Garfield Park. 
I see the work he does, and I also see the real the like chasm between what's available to people and what people need. And that's not about your dedication or FATS's dedication. It's not about what you want to provide to them. It's about resources. Absolutely. And so I think about like how much would we have to increase the funding to programs like this to actually see if it really works, to actually have the sort of big, wide impact that people want out of this. You know what, Patrick? I don't think that there's I can't even think of a number. I don't think, you know, you can't, you can't think. I walked into a funeral home with a family recently, young girl, could have put her father to rest. He was shot driving. They had to come up with minimal dollars. I think it was like they had to come out of pocket, $1,500 to open the doors of the funeral home. And this family couldn't even do that. So they had to put the funeral service, push it back. That's sad. How do you have to push a funeral service back because we couldn't come up with this money? I don't know. It's just very confusing. Sometimes I don't understand my passion for this work. Am I doing it? Should I continue? Or are we going to continue to struggle? Or are these people out here going to understand that we need support? You just want the violence to stop? Where are you to support us? I wish we could have picked up Joey and said, okay, look, we got that funding. You're going to be here now. His kid walks on pins and needles. Yes, I wish we had more resources. I think of it like two sides of a coin. The one side is, can we scale this up and maybe not? And then the other side of that coin is the people. The people who do the work and the people that you touch, the lives that are touched. I, I think of FATS. I think of you. The way that you have changed your life. This gave you a job. It helped give you a purpose. I think it gave you strength. I just want to thank you so much for letting me follow you for the last year and change. It's it's honestly kind of unbelievable to, to see the amount of need that is out there, but also the amount of care and dedication that you and people like you have to try to address that need, despite the fact that there's not nearly enough available to help people. Right. I also want to thank you for the work you do for making this city that I love a better place. It it gives me hope. Thank you. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Patrick Smith. Marie Mendoza is our producer. Our editor is Rob Wildeboer. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Tracy Brown is our chief content officer. Our story consultant is Cecilia Mannion. Additional help from Natalie Moore, Kate Cahan, Shannon Heffernan, Adriana Cardona-McGeegod, Max Green, and Joe Dassault. Music from Jeff Els, Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Network. 
I want to give a special thanks to the WBEZ newsroom, especially to my colleagues on the criminal justice desk, Chip Mitchell, Shannon Heffernan, Anna Sefchinka, and our editor, Rob Wildeboer. This podcast is made possible by WBEZ members. If you enjoyed this season, tell a friend. And make sure to rate and review the show. It helps others find us.